Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome once again to the mansion on the hill, the house of strange, the palace of mystery. This is the home of Terry's mysterious moments. This is season five. We thank you for listening to the show. Well, hello, all of my Mysterians. Another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments is here. What would you think if you were walking down the street and in cold, cold weather, and suddenly you meet up with the blue man. Would you think he was frozen or just needed to warm up? And would you hustle him inside a building? Well, if you lived in the Hazard, Kentucky area, beginning around 1820, there were blue-tinged people living there. They were called the Blue Fugits. Were they aliens? Was it poison? Well, the story's a little less dramatic, if no less weird. Martin Fugit was from France, and he was an orphan. He came to America and settled in the Troublesome Creek area in the hills of eastern Kentucky. Now, isn't that a place to live if you've got a blue color to your skin, Troublesome Creek? And that's in the eastern Kentucky hills in 1820. He married a woman named Elizabeth Smith, who was said to be as pale and white as the mountain laurel that blooms every spring around the creek hollows. Martin Fugit and Elizabeth Smith were both carriers of the recessive Met-H gene. As a result, four of their seven children exhibited blue skin and continued relative inbreeding within the very limited local gene pool ensured that many descendants of the Fugits were born with Met-H. Descendants with the gene continued to live in the areas around Troublesome Creek and Ball Creek into the 20th century, eventually coming to the attention of the nurse Ruth Pendergrass and the hematologist, that's a blood doctor, Madison Cowan III who made a detailed study of their condition and ancestry. He found that a report from 1960 by a public health doctor, E.M. Scott, who published in the Journal of Clinical Investigation, his research on the phenomenon among native Alaskans, based on the theory that a deficiency of the enzyme diaphorase is the cause of the oxygen deficiency in the red blood cells, causing the blood to appear brown, which in turn made the skin of those affected appear blue. 
Cowan treated the family with methylene blue, which eased their symptoms and reduced the blue coloring of their skin. He eventually published his research in the Archives of Internal Medicine in 1964. Benjamin Stacy, who was born in 1975, is the last known descendant of the Fugits to have been born exhibiting the characteristic blue color of the disorder, though he quickly lost his blue skin tone, exhibiting only blue tinges on his lips and fingertips if he was cold or agitated, as many of us do. It has been speculated that some other Americans who inherited this condition may also have had fugit ancestors, but searches for direct links have so far proved inconclusive. The colored skin issue reminds me of a story I spoke of earlier, the legend of the green children of Woolpit. It concerns two children of unusual skin color who reportedly appeared in the village of Woolpit in Suffolk, England, sometime in the 12th century, perhaps during the reign of King Stephen. The children, brother and sister, were of generally normal appearance except for the green color of their skin. They spoke in an unknown language and would only eat raw broad beans. Eventually, they learned to eat other food and lost their green color, but the boy was sickly and died soon after he and his sister were baptized. The girl adjusted to her new life, but she was considered to be rather loose and wanton in her conduct. After she learned to speak English, the girl explained that she and her brother had come from St. Martin's Land, a subterranean world inhabited by green people. Two approaches have dominated explanations of the story of the green children. That is, it is a folk tale describing an imaginary encounter with the inhabitants of another world perhaps subterranean or even extraterrestrial, or it presents a real event in a garbled manner. The story was praised as an ideal fantasy by the English anarchist poet and critic Herbert Reed in his English Prose Style, published in 1931, and provided the inspiration for his only novel, The Green Child, written in 1934. But the case of the Blue Fugits, or the Blue People of Kentucky, we realize that an off skin color can possibly be explained by science. If you are old enough, you will remember seeing Uri Geller on all the talk shows because he could bend spoons with his mind. He was an Israeli soldier at one time, and he decided to go for fame in doing this and making spoons crooked. For a long time. But he made a career of bending spoons with his mind and countless psychics have claimed to be able to see the future. But one of the most unusual assertions of mental powers came from Ted Sirius, a photographer. It was the mid-1960s when Sirius began sharing his ability to project his thoughts onto a piece of film. Yes, he could think of an image and send it into a camera. He called them photographs. This was typically done with Polaroid cameras. Sirius had been an unemployed bellhop in Chicago when his apparent powers caught the attention of a Denver-based psychiatrist named Dr. Jewel Eisenbud. 
Sirios demonstrated this technique, which usually involved a small rolled up tube placed at his forehead to supposedly help focus his thoughts toward the camera. He called it his gizmo. Eisenbud put Sirios through two years of extensive testing and came to fully believe in his subject's abilities, as he explains in his 1967 book, The World of Ted Sirios, Thotographic Studies of an Extraordinary Mind. Sirios didn't produce images with every attempt, but each was a spirited experience, as Eisenbud described it. When about to shoot, he seemed rapidly to go into a state of intense concentration, with eyes open, lips compressed, and a quite noticeable tension of his muscular system. His limbs would tend to shake somewhat, as if with a slight palsy, and the foot of his crossed leg would sometimes start to jerk up and down a bit convulsively. His face would become suffused and blotchy, the veins standing out on his forehead, and his eyes visibly bloodshot. The proctologist would perhaps liken what was occurring to the kind of tension and pressure built up during a difficult movement. He also drank a lot of beer and hard liquor during the process. The tests were reportedly designed to prevent the possibility of deception and included various experts in the fields of medicine, physics, chemistry, and psychology. In one of his thoughtography sessions, Sirios asked the attendees to suggest a subject for him to produce. The daughter of the doctor whose home they were in requested a building at the University of Rome where she planned to take a few courses. She had a folder of images with her at a distance from Sirios. He produced a blurry image which, according to Eisenbud, resembled a Roman church pictured in the girl's collection. His images were always blurred visions of something. That is, if they didn't come out completely white or black. With a creative interpretation like the Roman church, they could often be judged as successes. So was Eisenbud right? Was Sirius finally living proof of the existence of psychic abilities? Despite Eisenbud's confidence, many regarded the photographer as a charlatan. An article in the October 1967 issue of Popular Photography claimed that Sirios had inserted an object, possibly a small piece of photographic transparency, into the gizmo for the lens to capture. In their test, they included two experts Eisenbud hadn't been using, magicians. Eisenbud didn't take too kindly to the claim. He quickly offered a challenge as his response. I hereby state that if, before any competent jury of scientific investigators, photographers, and conjurers, any chosen by them can, in any normal way or combination of ways, duplicate under similar conditions the range of phenomena produced by Ted, I shall, one, abjure all further work with Ted. Two, buy up and publicly burn all available copies of The World of Ted Sirios. Three, take a full page ad in popular photography in, in order to be represented photographically wearing a dunce cap. And four, spend my spare time for the rest of my life 
selling door-to-door -door subscriptions of this amazing magazine. No time limit is stipulated. James Randi, the amazing Randi, who had a long history of exposing charlatans, responded to the invitation. However, he was informed that the similar conditions meant he'd be inside a Faraday cage, naked, at a considerable distance from the camera he would never be allowed to touch, as Sirius frequently did, and would have to get roaring drunk beforehand, as Sirius usually was when he worked. Randy declined. The New York Times also found difficulty believing in Sirius. In its May 14, 1967 review of the book, it mocked Eisenbud's experiments, saying that the doctor seems to have little notion of what experiments are and less liking for the rigors and methodology of scientific research. One observer who attended a test in 1966, Niall Root, agreed with the popular photography explanation. He explained his experience and everything wrong with it here. In brief, he described the event as such. Seven guests assembled the evening I was involved, a typical number for a group to witness a demonstration, according to Dr. Eisenbud. Each guest was asked to bring at least five rolls of 3,000-speed Polaroid film. Dozens of exposures were made in the two cameras brought by Dr. Eisenbud. Sirius would hold what he called a gizmo, which is a black paper tube about one inch in diameter and one and a half inches long, to the camera lens. He often displayed the gizmo so we could see that it was empty, but in his drunken condition he finally slipped up. He became quite drunk and obnoxious. He was chastised often by Dr. Eisenbud, but the doctor still continued to supply beer to Sirius. Sirius became careless as he was waving his arms and yelling. I saw a shiny object reflect from inside the paper gizmo that he always held to the camera lens. He would scream obscenities, contort his face, and sometimes yell, Now! The signal for whoever was holding the camera to trip the shutter. The frenzy continued. The evening wore on. Still, no photographs emerged from the multitude of developed images. Then, amazingly, after five long hours, three strange images arrived after the one minute to process each exposure. Altogether, with the two cameras, he produced six blurry images unrelated to the room's environment. I was puzzled. Naturally, Sirius had always maintained his abilities were genuine. In a Life magazine feature from September of 1967, writer Paul Welch said, He was a driven man. He had this thing he could do, and he wanted someone to explain it to him. He wanted to control it, to consistently predict the pictures he would make, which he can do only occasionally, to make it useful. He thought, for instance, he might be able to spy on Russian missile sites for the Air Force. But above all, he wanted to stop proving he could do it, that he wasn't a charlatan, that it was for real. If it isn't for real, he would argue, why can't I do it all the time? If it was a trick, 
I could make money on it. I could go into nightclubs or on TV. Well, he did make it on TV on a segment from a 1985 episode of Arthur C. Clarke's World of Strange Powers. However, he and Eisenbud were unable to recapture the magic or magic trick from their earlier sessions. If they had and the stunt had been authentic, perhaps as the Times said in 1967, our general view of the nature of the universe will certainly require a drastic overhaul. Now I witnessed this guy on television once in action and it was on TV and was probably on this Arthur C. Clarke program but I'll tell you he was scary to watch. Do I think he was a true oddity with the abilities he claimed to have? Maybe leaning toward yes. One reason I don't outright call this man a fraud is that he was not successful on every attempt. I think if he had been successful 100% of the time, it would have been easier to say there were nefarious agencies at work. In 1907, a Massachusetts doctor named Duncan McDougall performed an unusual series of experiments. Intrigued by the idea that the human soul had mass and could therefore be weighed, Dr. McDougall put together a bed fitted with a sensitive set of beam scales and convinced a series of terminally ill patients to lie on it during the final moments of their lives. MacDougall was nothing if not detail-oriented. He recorded not only each patient's exact time of death, but also his or her total time on the bed, as well as any changes in weight that occurred around the moment of expiration. He even factored losses of bodily fluids like sweat and urine and gases like oxygen and nitrogen into his calculations. His conclusion was that the human soul weighed three-fourths of an ounce or 21 grams. It's hard to imagine these experiments getting any serious attention from the scientific community today, but the lines of thinking that led to them and the reactions they generated remain with us even to this day. The results of McDougall's study appeared in the New York Times in March of 1907. The article set off a debate between McDougall and the physician Augustus P. Clark, who had a field day with McDougall's minuscule measurement techniques. Clark pointed out that at the moment of death, the lungs stop cooling the blood, causing the body's temperature to rise slightly, which makes the skin sweat, accounting for Dr. McDougall's missing 21 grams, which I have an issue with because if the sweat's on the body, the body's going to weigh the same. McDougall fired back in the next issue, arguing that circulation ceases at the moment of death so the skin wouldn't be heated by the rise in temperature. The debate ran all the way to the end of 1907, picking up supporters on both sides along the way. For four years, all was quiet on the McDougal front, but in 1911 he graced the New York Times front page with an announcement that he had upped the ante. This time he wouldn't be weighing the human soul. He'd be photographing it at the moment it left the body. 
Although he expressed concern that the soul substance might become too agitated to be photographed at the moment of death, he did manage to perform a dozen experiments in which he photographed a light resembling that of the interstellar ether in or around patient skulls at the moments they died. McDougall himself passed away into the interstellar ether in 1920, leaving behind a small band of ardent supporters along with a larger group of physicians who seemed incredulous that this farce had gone on so long. Members of the public settled down on one side or the other, and the discussion fell off the radar. Except that it never really did, at least not completely. References to McDougall's experiments continue to spring forth in pop culture every few years, from the Victorian era right up to today. The idea that the soul weighs 21 grams has appeared in novels, songs, and movies. It's even been the title of a film. Dan Brown described McDougall's experiments in some detail in his adventure yarn, The Lost Symbol. Mention the soul-weighing experiments to a person who is into parapsychology, and you'll likely hear a murmur of approval. Yeah, that's right. After all, the idea of scientific proof for the soul offers comfort in much the same way that tarot readings and hotline spiritualists do. Uh-huh. Even among more skeptical folks, it's a topic that comes up now and then in late-night discussions. Wasn't there a guy once who tried to weigh the soul? The experiment's actual results and their failure to achieve acceptance as scientific canon are entirely beside the point. Science has gone one way and pop culture another. Functional neuroimaging has tied every conceivable function once associated with the soul to specific regions and structures of the brain. Physics has mapped the linkages between subatomic particles so thoroughly that there's simply no space left for spiritual forces. And yet, the idea of weighing the soul remains with us. It's romantic. It's relatable. It speaks to some of our deepest longings and fears that gripped McDougall's readers back in 1907 and still captivate us today, 114 years later. To understand why McDougall wanted to weigh the soul and why he thought he could, it helps to understand the environment in which he operated. His work is rife with terms and ideas recognizable from early psychological theorists Freud and Jung. There's a lot of talk about psychic functions and animating principles, a grasping for the precise scientific language to describe consciousness and life itself in a world still ignorant of fMRI and DNA. We're still profoundly ignorant today, as any honest scientist will tell you. Certain behaviors of quantum particles still baffle the brightest minds and we're still a long way from understanding exactly how our brains do most of what they do. We keep looking for the dark matter that constitutes more than 80% of the universe's mass, but we haven't actually seen a single atom of it or know exactly where it is. Dark matter cannot be photographed, 
but researchers can detect it and map it by measuring gravitational lensing. And in all these dark corners, we still find people looking for the soul. Some say we'll eventually discover it among quantum particles. Others insist it's got something to do with the electromagnetic waves our brains generate. Most scientists reject these claims. But these researchers and theorists soldier on, unwilling to give up hope that one day we'll be able to weigh, measure, and quantify the hereafter. McDougall's work resonated and continues to resonate not because of what he found or failed to find, but because of what he suggested. The simple idea behind the experiments was appealing, and for many who followed the debate in the New York Times, that idea alone was enough to make McDougall's work worthy of discussion. But in 1907, as today, the real, testable, verifiable universe continually proves to be much stranger than anything parapsychology can dream up. How are photons both particles and waves and yet somehow neither? The universe is full of real unsolved mysteries whose real answers are out there somewhere. We don't need the souls of the dead to craft a haunting series of experiments. The measurable physical universe is more than eerie enough. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for being along for the ride. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Aaron reads listener stories, mostly ghost stories, sometimes UFOs, sometimes cryptids. On Tuesday, Aaron Frail brings you Aaron's Horror Show, different things that he's written. He reviews movies, books, things like that. On Wednesday, it's me, Terry from Texas, with Terry's Mysterious Moments, where we talk about just about anything there is to talk about. And at the first weekend of the month, we have video from The Witching Hour. And Aaron has instituted a new area called Entertaining Short Films. That's exactly what they are. They're just short stories. Nothing in particular, no particular genre, just entertaining. Remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have Apple or Android, download the RPA app, which is a black square with a blue eye in the middle of it. Download that to the device that you listen to the program on. Install it, and when you open that up, you can go straight to the Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, and its network. So all the all the stories that are involved with RPA are there, so you don't have to go hunting for them. If you want to contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments, you can do that on the Facebook page, and it's called Terry's Mysterious Moments. Or you can email me at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Contact me if you want to. Let's talk about some things. That's about it. We'll be back again 
Listen to the other shows. Have a good week, everybody.